Hello and welcome to Citizen Kane Minute, the show that examines the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me to discuss minutes 80 to 85 of Citizen Kane is podcaster and writer, John Trumbull. Hi, John. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Now, John, this is your unique guest. Well, and your new unique guest in many ways, but specifically, <laughs> is that's that, the nicest way to put it. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get it. Yeah. Uh, is that you and I have actually podcasted about Citizen Kane before? Yeah. Uh, you and Bill Zanowitz were my guests on the second ever episode of my other show, the Film and Water Podcast, talking about this movie. Now, I have not gone back to listen to that show because I don't, I, I'm, be, I'm sure I'd be horrified by what I sound like. But I, I also am amazed at like my hubris that like for the second episode of my show, I tackled the greatest film of all time. It's a little like maybe I could have built up to that or something, but I don't know. I mean, you guys went along with it, so maybe it turned out okay. I don't really remember, and I don't want to go back and find it. Yeah, I thought about listening back to that one uh, too, but I, uh, of course, didn't get to it. Um, so Probably good. How many years back was that? That was five years ago. Oh my goodness. Okay. The world was, people seem to laugh more then. Uh, so, but we're here, we're here to talk about these five minutes of Citizen Kane, 80 to 85, like I said. They're going to start with Bernstein reading Jed Leland's uh, review of, of Susan's uh, opera performance. And they're going to end with uh, Jed asking Thompson to wrap up some cigars for him. Uh, but before we get to all that, I got to start with the standard question. So, John, when did you first see Citizen Kane? I first saw Citizen Kane, I think it was probably sometime in my teen years. Like you and I, we both have that comic book background. We both went to the Kubert School and we right. podcasted about that before. And I remember reading in interviews, I, I can't remember who originally said this, but like the, it was kind of the, the, the common wisdom that you cannot be a, a comic book artist without seeing Citizen Kane. That was like the movie you had to see. And that was, I think, the movie that, like, a lot of the Golden Age artists sort of cut their eye teeth on. Oh, sure. I mean, because there are just so many striking shots in it, and it, it, just the way it uses the medium and the lighting and the composition, it's it's also amazing. So I was like, oh, well, I guess I better see Citizen Kane. And then I, I seeked it out on some movie channel or another and watched it, and, and of course I loved it, was really into it, and... Bought it on videotape, bought it on DVD. I, I don't have bought it on Blu-ray yet. Um, so I still have that in my future. <laughs> there are many other formats. I'm sure it will come out in that we can, we can. Eventually we'll just have like a, a, you know, laser directly into our eyeballs. Right. Yeah. You can, you know, what movies do you have implanted into your cerebral cortex? Well, <laughs> I have Albert Brooks and I have Citizen Kane and I have the James Bond series, of course. Um, sure. <laughs> do you think, uh, as you just mentioned, you went to the Joe Kubert school as did I, and I've been, it's been a recurring motif through the show that everyone else, all the other guests practically saw it in college for the first time because mm -hmm. they, you know, they had that, uh, you know, there's like those repertory screenings. And of course you and I didn't go to a real college, so we didn't have that. Well, ability. I, I did go to college before the Cubert school. Oh, you did? Oh, I don't think I knew that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I went to University of Evansville, class of 94, uh, got myself a BFA in graphic design. Look at you. Well, good job. <laughs> Look at hoity-toity Joe College over here. <laughs> did they have like a, a movie theater repertory type thing that you could go and see movies at? Uh, we had um, like a weekly thing. There was like an entertainment thing called Union Board. Uh, and then it, it like rebranded itself sometime when I was there. And I can't remember what the second name was. Um, but they would show like a, a movie every week. It wasn't so much a repertory stuff. It would be more current release. Stuff. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, but I remember my dad uh, around that same time, he was, he worked at Vanderbilt University 
Uh, he was the Episcopalian chaplain there. And Vanderbilt had a great uh, film program. And I saw a lot of cool films uh, there when, whenever I was home on the weekend. So that's yeah, they really do cool. a lot of, they do a lot of midnight screenings and stuff. Yeah. That's really, geez, boy, I was feeling, I felt like I had a simpatico relationship finally with a guest who didn't go to college and didn't see citizens again. And now I don't even have that. So, okay, well, just, I'm so sorry to take that away from you. If, if I'd known in, in <laughs> 1990, I would have said, no, I can't go to college. I'm sorry. Because in 2021, I mean, I had to keep this bond with Rob Kelly, who I had not met yet. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate the gesture. Um, yeah. Do you think as artists, because I mean, you said you, you said you went to art school like I did. Do you think that artists maybe have a, an initially a greater appreciation? I don't want to say better because that's, that's a judgment that I'm trying mm-hmm. to make. But do you think that artists are maybe more inclined to appreciate a movie like this uh, right out of the gate because it is so visual and it, it does read so much like a comic book in some ways? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it is a very visually striking movie and it does a lot of, interesting audacious things so yeah i think artists could probably hook into it a little easier i remember like showing citizen kane to my folks and my sister and i i can't remember if my my parents had seen it before uh hand or not probably i would imagine uh my sister hadn't and i remember uh after we watched it my sister was like okay well what she she didn't quite get it um, and I, I had to explain, well, no, you have to understand, like, this is the first time a lot of these right. things were done, but it had been, I don't want to say ripped off, but like so many other films that incorporated the techniques that Citizen Kane pioneered, it didn't seem like such a big deal right. anymore looking at it sometime in the 1990s. Right. Yeah. It's hard to, sometimes it's hard to appreciate the thing that, that started it all when you've seen all mm-hmm. the imitations, not imitations, as you say, but like everything that's, that it's influenced since. Yeah, uh, you know, you're kind of like, all right, but it's almost like if you, I would imagine if you played the Beatles in some respects for a young kid musically, it doesn't sound all that inventive. And you have to realize, yeah, but they were <laughs> in 1964. It was yeah. pretty inventive. But just everybody's been borrowing from it since. Yeah, uh, is it is it a movie that you watch repeatedly or or often? Do you go back generally and watch movies over and over? Um, I don't. I don't rewatch it as often as I used to. I mean, I pulled it out for this, of course, and I, I rewatched it this morning with the uh, Roger Ebert commentary, which That's is great. one of it's one of the all time great movie commentaries. He should and have really, done more of those. He was really good. Unsurprisingly, he was really good at it. And he only did a handful. And he, I mean, he is like never a loss for words in that commentary. He yep. is talking like pretty much nonstop through the entire film. Uh, there's never a scene where he doesn't have something to say or, yeah, and he's he's just a fount of knowledge. And I realized, I don't, the DVD I have also has a Peter Bogdanovich commentary, yep. which I don't think I've ever sat down to listen to. So I should probably do that. It's fun. It's good. It's, it's, yeah. It is a lot slower just because uh-huh. he tends to talk more pensive. He seems to have, you know, he's more pensive than Ebert. As you say, Ebert is like from stem to stern talking. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I... It used it was a movie that I rewatched like once a year or so, and I haven't pulled it out in a while. So it was fun to revisit that. Uh, you know, I just don't rewatch movies quite as much as I used to these days. There's so much more new things to watch. You know? Yeah, yeah, true. true. Yeah, you're, you're, I always have that. Like, should I rewatch Jaws again, or should I try something new? And then, you know, half the time, like, yeah, I'll watch Jaws again. <laughs> but I do. I feel a little guilty about it that I. 
I have not worked more through my cues, the various 17 cues that I have oh, of, I know. Of, of stuff when I am like sitting here watching uh, Albert Brooks is lost in America again for the 95th time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, like so many times I, I log on to Netflix or, or uh, Amazon prime or whatever. And I'm just like, Oh, well, what should, should I watch? Should I watch this or, Oh, I'll watch this old episode of cheers or star Trek. again. <laughs> <laughs> I love the corn. Excellent. Cool. Yeah, okay. I mean, Hey, you love your comfort food. You know, mm-hmm. that's absolutely that, that, that tends to be the case. So I I started, but like the, now that we are about halfway through Citizen Kane at this point, uh, mm-hmm. a little a little bit further than than half, uh, I've changed the question because I've been asking everybody, do you think it's the greatest film of all time? But that I think that it's easy, I think it's more informative to ask what films would you put up there as the greatest of all time? And and you can include Citizen Kane or not, but I'm sort of curious about what my guest's baseline are about. What do, what do you think are some of the greatest films of all time? Oh, Lord. Um, I think if I was making a list of the greatest films of all time, yeah, Citizen Kane would be up there. I could probably put another Orson Welles film, Touch of Evil, up there as mm, well. Wow. I okay. One. I always try to distinguish between greatest and favorite. Sure. Um, I yes. can make a list of my favorites very easily. Greatest, that's a tougher thing to yep. quantify, you know? There are some films that are like brilliant technical achievements, like like 2001 A Space Odyssey, but I don't necessarily want to pull that one off, pull it off the shelf too much and, mm-hmm. and rewatch it, you know? Uh, it's a commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, I think of something like Wizard of Oz. I would put Wizard of Oz on any greatest films of all time list, but it's not one of my favorites in particular. I recognize yeah. its quality, but it's not, it's not a movie I own and particularly ever really want to see again. But I would argue, yes, it's one of the greatest films of all time because of its influence, right. its, its innovations, its, you know, its, its history. It's still famous this many years later. So, yeah, that's why I'm always fascinated now about like, what people would consider the greatest of all time. The goat, I mean, as it Wizard of Oz, I'll always have a nostalgic affection for because that was a film that I used to watch once a year yep. with the family yep. whenever it aired on TV. Yep. And that was an event, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and this was you and I are old enough that we grew up in an era where you couldn't watch a film whenever you wanted to. And, yep. and you couldn't like even owning a film was just kind of beyond us in our childhood. Yeah. Once it um, left the theater, so- it was gone forever. Yeah, so so Wizard of Oz and Sound and Music, those were the two event films, and they would air once a year. I'm looking over at my <laughs> my, my my movie shelf right now. Um, you know, Hard Day's Night, uh, I would put up there. Okay, that's, that's a great film. Uh, Some like it hot. You know, that's okay, another one fair that, enough. That pops out. Of course, one of my favorites. I don't know if I'd put it on the greatest films list. Uh, Superman the movie. That's the movie that made me fall in love with movies. <laughs> well, there you go. I probably couldn't argue putting it on like the 10 greatest of all time, but personally, absolutely. It's always on yeah. my personal top 10. So, okay, fair enough. Like I said, yeah. I, I find it, say, I'm finding it more instructive to invert the question and say, well, what would you put on the list rather than ask whether somebody would put Kane on theirs? Because it's again, it's it's so subjective and it's meant to be. It's just completely yeah. subjective. Yeah. Not, there and, is that's, no- and that's just off the top of my head if you'd, if you'd asked me that a week ago, I could have spent a week like composing a top ten. Right. And it would be I much always, more thoughtful and considered. But yeah, I always like to blindside my guests on my show. I always find that's a that's and a thank you for that. I mean, You're very much welcome. Appreciate it. Very welcome. Can you believe him, everybody? So okay, uh, let's talk about minutes eighty to eighty five. As I said, they start with Bernstein reading Jed's review, and uh, Jed asking Thompson for some cigars. So like you said this is one of the big scenes. I mean, I think I should say that every episode where Jed has passed out 
from drinking. Uh, supposedly that is based on a real event in uh, in uh, <laughs> in Herman Mankiewicz's life where he he didn't finish a review because he was drunk and the paper that he was writing for had to run run something that said uh, the review will appear in tomorrow's paper, which was like completely verboten back then. <laughs> but but so he's passed out and Bernstein is reading the review to Kane, who is, of course, in no mood to hear anything bad about uh, Susan Alexander's performance. Right. So Bernstein's reading it and then uh, he he stops. He says, there's no more. And then Kane uh, starts talking and uh, starts talking, you know, basically uh, going further uh, as the criticism of, of Susan's review after he chuckles a little bit. And mm-hmm. then Bernstein is sort of confused because he's like, it doesn't say that. And then he says, uh, I'm dictating. And Kane decides that he is going to finish the review uh, in exactly the style that Jed decided to finish it. And then Jed will wake up shortly and uh, we will hear the ta 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 of Kane typing and uh, Jed, you know, gets up and he says, oh, I never knew I'd get that review through. Mm-hmm. And there's this mar- marvelous close up of uh, the typewriter keys hitting the paper. And you see weak in, yeah. in, in that fuzzy lettering as the, uh, the ink hits the paper. And then Bernstein has to inform them that uh, Char- you know, Mr. Kane is finishing the review as you intended. And then he says, I guess that'll show you. Yeah. Uh, which is just a marvelous line. And I love how much unspoken there is between these two guys. Because, you know, we. You know, to this point, Bernstein has been a complete acolyte of Kane. Yeah. Uh, but in this moment, he is obviously, he's still going to stick with Kane, but he, he's acknowledging without saying it to Jed, you know, how far afield this guy has gotten. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's really interesting in this scene. I mean, it's, you've got the contradictions in Charles Foster Kane, where he'll write a negative review about his own wife in his <laughs> own paper just to quote unquote prove that he's an honest man, as yep. as Jed Leland says. And you also see like how how far apart Jed and 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 Charles Roster Kane have drifted apart. And and you also see where Bernstein is too, because he's as Ebert says this in his commentary, like Bernstein's the guy who never lost faith. But and I and I love the way that uh Bernstein says that line where just the, I, I guess that'll show you. He, he's taking no pleasure in it. He just says it so neutrally, but he's just like, this is, this is how it is. Uh, I love also that, uh, that, you know, Jed, uh, is, even though he is in his friend's employ, which is yeah. probably never a great idea, uh, he's gutsy enough to go and confront Kane over this. Bernstein's not going to. Bernstein is, you know, again, completely sort of in the thrall of Kane in every conceivable way, but Jed is going to sort of confront him. And then it leads to this really marvelous shot again, wonderfully composed by Greg Toland. Um, mm-hmm. Now there's a, there's a, uh, there's a visual trick going on here because I think due to scheduling or something, Ebert mentions this in the commentary, I forget exactly what the reason was, but that these two shots, although it looks like one of Joseph Cotton coming into the foreground with Kane very much in the foreground as he's typing they are two separate shots spliced mm-hmm. together and they hid the cut. I think somewhere in the door frame that is right behind uh, Charlie's shoulder, but these two actors are actually not there at the same time. Uh, this is pieced together, which is marvelous because yeah. you know, I mean, it looks completely real. And Ebert said in his commentary, I think it was for technical reasons because like, because of the deep focus technique that they were doing, it was just too difficult to light it okay. properly uh, because you've got, 
like Charles Foster Kane on the left side of the frame, and he's he's very large. And then you see uh, Jed Leland starting from way way back in the background, and then he walks almost to the foreground until he's like just behind Charles Foster Kane. And uh, so it was it was just too difficult to light it properly for both sides and keep everything in focus all the time. There you go. Yeah. I said it's, it's again, it's marvelous. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I'm sure with black and white, it's a little easier to hide these things because you don't have yeah. like the color grading. That's a little different. Uh, almost like those Hanna-Barbera cartoons, you know, you're like, why does the lamp look so much brighter than the rest of the background? <laughs> oh, cause it's about to move. That's why. Yeah. Um, but in black and white, it hides a little bit, of, but it, but it's marvelous shot. And it ends with this great piece of sound where uh, Charlie fires Jed. And he yeah. says, uh, Jed, you're fired. And he punctuates it with the carriage return yeah. of the typewriter. And again, you know, Wells, we all know how brilliant he was at audio, having come from radio. But, I mean, it's such a perfect, the taka taka you're fired, Jebediah. Ka-chung! And it's yeah. just great. It's just, it just hangs in the air of, of the awkwardness of that moment where he, he's fired his best friend. You can't do that in the computer age. I mean, there's, yeah, there's no carriage return. There's, yeah. Yeah. There's... You know, what, what are you going to do? Like a dot matrix printer? You can't even do that anymore. <laughs> I'll hit the enter key extra hard. <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't have the same effect. So it's, it's like just... trying to hang up angrily on a cell phone. You just, yeah, you know, right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to punch this button really hard. Yeah. Beep. Okay. I really made my point there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, he fires Jed and Jed looks, Jed doesn't look that shocked. He does. I think he's more, he's not shocked that he's fired as I think he's more shocked that his friend has sort of turned on him so completely. Uh, and again, I don't mean that it turned on him that he's fired him, but, but turned on him in that he is just emotionally shut down from his best friend at this point. And Jed doesn't even argue because then we get this close up of Jed walking out the door and that's it. I mean, the, him and him and Charlie, I think, don't think we'll ever see each other again. Yeah. And, and they hadn't spoken for years uh, before this point because they had the falling out after the election. And uh, Jed Leland, of course, he goes off to uh, Chicago, I think it is. And he's the, the drama critic there. So they, even though he was technically still employed by Kane, they were not in touch and they certainly weren't close like they once were. And I think Jed is also shocked that uh, Kane has chosen to finish it as a negative review rather than rewriting it as, as a positive review, uh, like all the other notices in his papers. Yeah, it's because just, like it's... at the at the very beginning of the scene, we see Bernstein. He's got like sort of a, a a conclave of folks, and and he's like, okay, well, we've got this positive notice and this positive notice, mm-hmm. and and we covered it from this this angle, and he's just making sure that they're saying nothing but great things about Susan Alexander. And as we've just seen in the film, her performance was not that great. It's, uh, you have to wonder what Charlie, why he's doing this. I mean, yeah. we know we know that he's doing it to prove that he's still honest, but a, obviously it's a very transparent uh, effort to do. And second of all, it's like, well, you know that nobody's buying it. Like, you know, that Jed isn't buying it. Jed knows you too well. And even Bernstein knows you too well. So you're almost like what you're almost kind of just uh, to use a modern uh, term, you're self owning really by doing this. Uh He thinks he thinks he's getting one over on everybody, but you're really not because it just looks sort of, pathetic that he's like oh this will prove that i'm still on the up and up like what are you talking about well and also you've got that great irony of he's doing this 
as Jed says, to prove that he's an honest man. But this requires him to lie to his wife and pretend that Jed wrote the entire review. when <laughs> Really, the majority of it was written by Kane himself. And I'm sure he never fesses up and says, oh, no, actually, that was me. I, Jed wrote the first two sentences and I just continued on in that page. Right. Yeah. So right. He's dishonest no matter which way he's doing it. Yeah. Uh, and what, and he's he's lying to himself, too. So, I mean, because like it shows that he couldn't write that review if he didn't know if it was bad. I mean, he knows in his heart that it was bad. So he's kind of getting all that out in the review, I would imagine. That's it's interesting that you say that, because in the does he know it's bad or does he is he so blinded by Susan that he doesn't know it's bad or you you think he straight up does know it's terrible? I think maybe in his heart of hearts, he knows that it is not good. But to Charles Foster Kane, it is the worst thing in the world to admit any fault. That um, sounds familiar. You, you and yeah, you and I were talking about this a little uh, before we we started the episode. Is like we we are now in an age where it's like if you are called on a mistake, you don't just double down, you triple down. Yeah, you, you never admit that you were wrong, and you're like. You just in, even in the face of undeniable evidence that you were wrong, you, you're just like, oh well, no, I'm I'm not wrong because, and and Kane is like a forerunner of that. Oh man, Charlie Kane on Twitter would have been something to behold. Oh my it goodness! Really oh my goodness! Been. Yes. Woo! Uh, <laughs> and so uh, the shot continues on, and we see Charlie off in the right hand side of the screen typing away and we see Bernstein's silhouette behind him as he's basically probably going to be there the whole night. I guess Bernstein realizes that he has to work the whole night because they got to get this into the paper. So Mm -hmm. he's like, I guess I'm here for the rest of the night as Charlie sitting here attacking away. And it leaves the, uh, the left-hand side of the screen in total darkness. And then there's a slow uh, light fade in and we're, we're met with Thompson uh, or not, excuse me. We're met with Jed uh, as he is in the present day talking and recalling this story and this particular shot there's a lot of this in citizen king where the the light fades down on the current scene mm-hmm. just as the next scene fades up and then really occurred to me until i watched this how much of like a play this is because that's a that's a play effect is that it's kind of very stagey you know, yes. yeah very stagey and i really it's really pretty cool yeah yeah it, it really is and it's just almost calling your attention to the artifice of it. And I think that's a very intentional effect. And, you know, of course, it's it's commenting on maybe the unreliability of, of memory. Like we all sort of stage our own memories in our heads. And the way we remember something isn't always exactly how it happened. And more often than not, isn't how it, it happened. But you remember it in the way that you remember it and it gets built up and changed over time. And you maybe remember it in a more self-serving way than, than it actually happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so then we have, uh, Jed uh, talking and he talks about the, the, you know, this had that big old compound that he moved to. And he says, what was it called? Shangri-La or El Dorado. And, and then mm-hmm. we don't see Thompson. We don't see, uh, William Allen as Mr. Thompson in this initial moment, but you can almost tell that he's looking at Thompson and Thompson must be giving him a look of like, look, Come on. And then Jed sort of fesses up. Oh, I know the name of it. Like he's yeah. playing that he doesn't know the name of this. Thompson, Thompson is not taking the bait at yeah. all. Yeah. He, like, so, yeah. So Jed's, Jed's kind of lying too. He's pretending he doesn't know as much as he, he does. And yeah, he, he probably hasn't even been out to Xanadu because he wasn't close with uh, Charlie Kane when he was, he was building it. So. Yeah, uh, I, I love that. And by the Shangri-La, of course, comes from the book Lost Horizon. It's one of my favorite books by James. Another great movie too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The 1937 movie is, is terrific. We even talked about it on Film and Water a bunch of years ago, but it was also mostly in the public consciousness, even though that book was a bestseller. 
uh, it was really in the public consciousness in 1941 because it was used by FDR uh, when he had a meeting uh, with Winston Churchill. They went to this secret location. Right. Um, people right. asked him, where, where are you meeting Churchill? And he joked, we're going to Shangri-La. Uh, and, uh, of course, that, you know, made people remember what it was. But, I mean, it's FDR being cheeky, kind of saying, yeah, we're going to this secret location that doesn't exist, of course. But that's why in 1941, it was even so much in people's consciousness because the president had just mentioned. So uh, he also mentions that he got a letter from Charlie and he says he never answered it. And he talks about that he regrets that maybe he should have. And it, it again, it reminds me a little bit of the scene a couple episodes previous that we talked about with uh, Noah Tarnow, where he mentions to Susan that he was on the way, he was on his way to a warehouse to go through his mother's stuff because she had just passed mm-hmm. away and he never gets there. And of course we realize, well, had he gotten there and had he seen the sled, maybe some of the stuff that happened never would have happened. He would have had that memory rekindled for himself. And so this probably isn't to that level, but at the same time, you got to wonder some point in Charlie's life, he got desperate enough to reach out to the friend that he fired and the friend never responded to him. And you have to think, well, that probably just cemented uh, the, the whatever, whatever uh, terrible path charlie was on it was just cemented by the fact that his best friend ostensibly rejected and that's a that's a thing that the movie sprinkles in as well is it it's not just the things you do in your life it's the things you don't do in your life and that and those are probably the biggest regrets that you have it's like oh well i regret that i never made up with charlie or i never made up with jed or that that Kane never made it to that warehouse and possibly saw his sled. And of course, that if if he'd done that, he never would have married Susan, and his whole life would have taken a different path. And uh, th- that calls back to the whole famous scene with Bernstein, where he talks about uh, seeing the girl, the girl on the ferry, yeah, the girl on the ferry. Which you know, he says, not a month of my life has gone by that I haven't thought of that girl. And I mean, that's that can be a very hurtful question to ask yourself as you look back on your life as like, well, what if what if I what if I'd done this? What if I'd gone up to that girl and spoken to her? And uh, yeah, we've talked about in previous episodes that when you're when you're younger, if you're in your if you're like a teenager and you see this that this movie, um, some of these scenes don't resonate as well because you just haven't had the experiences. And mm-hmm. that scene with Bernstein in particular, and then they're talking about here. Yeah, I, when if you're 16, 17, you don't really have lots of regrets at that point. At least you hope I hope you sh- hope you don't. But then as you get older, you know, and you rack up life experiences and you pass certain things by, then that stuff becomes very resonant because you're like, well, I probably should have done that or should have done this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because a lot of times, you know, a lot of people say you shouldn't waste time regretting things because you did what you did and you move on at the same time. It's all human nature to yeah. regret some things. And I have things where I'm like, Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And, or, or I should have, I wish I had done that or hadn't done that. It's I've noticed that throughout my life, the things that I, the small things I regret are when, I, I get up in my own head about, oh, it's too much trouble to do X. Mm-hmm. And then you look back on it and you say, I wish I had done that. That would have been fun. Why didn't I do that? You know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of thing. And it's not not huge things, but it's all little things where you just say, oh, that might have been, you know, that, that might have been fun. And the one thing I will bring up when I think about this moment, and it's such a silly example, but it's one of the things in my mind. Right after, uh, in 1994, when Friends came on the air, I was living mm-hmm. up in North Jersey, actually over by you. And uh, I had written in for tickets to get to go see Friends because we had me and my roommates had loved Friends. And I got them. Oh, I got cool. them. I got two tickets to Friends. I mean, the odds of that were. And unfortunately, I got them like a week before I had to be in L.A. to go mm. to the thing. 
And I was waiting and I was like, oh man, this is, this will be so fun. I've never been to a TV show taping at that point. I had not. And I was like, oh man, this will be odd. Like what an experience. I'll fly to LA. I'll grab a friend. We'll have like this great adventure. And then I just talked myself out of it because I was like, oh, I don't want to spend the money and I got to take the day off from work. And, you know, you can imagine. Mm. I, I just basically threw the tickets out. And I look back at that. I'm like, you dummy. That would have been a fun. <laughs> that really would have been a fun adventure to, to yeah. toddle off to Los Angeles for a couple of days. Go see a taping of the show that I really at the time really loved and come back. And, you know, I was like. That's stupid. Why didn't I just do that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, it's like I said, it's the things you don't do that you tend to regret the most. Yep. I mean, hope, well, hopefully. I mean, yeah, hopefully, yeah, hopefully you, yeah. you haven't done something so foolish. Oh, I, I wish have I killed hadn't killed that guy. I regret I wish I hadn't that. murdered that hobo in, <laughs> in 97. <laughs> very specific year, John. What do you have? Are you hiding something? What's, it was very specific. That Look, thing. nothing happened on April 26, 1997. Okay. I can't. <laughs> that guy was dead when I got there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of a, because you look back and you say, well, all this stuff that I talked myself out of, it, it happened anyway. Like, if you didn't miss a day of work or I yeah. didn't spend the money, well, the money's gone anyway. So, what's yeah, the yeah. difference? I mean, do you uh, remember that day at work? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, probably not. And I, I've also mentioned, I think I even mentioned this in the Bernstein episode where like the regrets I have are so frequently centered around comic cons uh-huh. and, and it, because of that, you spent a lot of time at comic cons as well of like, I didn't go up to that person when I had the chance yeah. and now they're gone, you know, they're gone now and I'll never get, and it's like, Oh, I should have taken three minutes to go over to that person's table and I could have had that experience and now I'll never get that experience. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a book project now it's like an oral history of, of the DC animated universe. And already a couple of the people I wanted to interview or interview more extensively have passed on. Mm. And it's just, it, it kills you because it's just like, ugh, you know, they're, they're just gone. And, and the stories that they could have told me, those are gone as well. And yeah. you know, there's no second chance of that. And it's just, ugh, it eats you up. Yeah, it really does. And so I, I really like Cotton's performance here where, I mean, I like it throughout the whole movie, but but I just like the sort of, he doesn't overplay it, uh, which is, again, that's why he was a great actor. Yeah. But just the wistfulness of like, oh, I should have answered it. Like he's he's lived with the regret for a long time and he's no he's past beating himself up too heavily, but he is bringing it up. I mean, he didn't have to mention it at all to mm-hmm. Mr. Thompson. He could have said nothing, but he does. He tend, you know, he bothers to tell Thompson yeah, Charlie reached out to me and I didn't, I didn't respond and I should have. And you have to think, yeah, I mean, you know, Charlie was probably pretty lonely up there in that big house and he had to lower himself a little bit, probably in his own eyes to reach out to a friend that mm-hmm. he had so brutally cast off and to never get a response uh, probably had to be very hurtful. And so again, I just think it's, it's a great little uh, just the way Thompson, excuse me, Thompson, the way, uh, the, the way that, uh, Joseph Cotton delivers it is, is just, yeah. marvelous. it's just a nice grace note in that scene. And it, it's also amazing when you think about like how young Wells and a lot of his players were Yeah, like, cause Wells was like 25, 26 when he yep. made this film. 25. Can you believe it? It is so insightful about the arc of someone's life and what happens as you age and you get set in your ways or you go back on the principles of your youth and you drift apart from friends. And it's like, how, how do you get that? How do you get so wise about life at, at age 25? I mean, 
I mean, a lot of this is Mankiewicz, and Mankiewicz was older and had some. That's true. But that's, still, that's an excellent but, point. Yes, but also, but I mean, Wells knew what to leave in and what to leave. You know what I mean? I mean, he 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 allows the scene with Bernstein talking about the girl in the ferry to leave it in. You know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of maybe other people would have said, well, "What does this have to do with the movie?" That that's coming and, and Wells said that was his favorite scene in the movie, and there was some interview. Oh, did he, he really? Gave. Yeah, there was some interview he gave. I have some book about Citizen Kane where he he was talking about the movie, and he said all the rest could have been better. But that's right. <laughs> okay, Orson. Sure, all the rest could have been better. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I ever. Boy, I've read a lot of books about Wells and Kane. Either I've read that and forgotten, it or I never saw it. But that's that's very interesting. It's some. I, I can't even remember the title, but it was it was a. It's like a 50th anniversary uh, book. So oh. I would have gotten it in like 1989. So this would have been around the time I first got into the movie and. Uh, that's probably oh. why I, I first saw the movie. It was probably somewhere around the 50th anniversary. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. That's that's sure. good. So uh, and then so uh, then two nurses come in uh, to sort of uh, get to, to take uh, take Jed away. Uh, the one nurse that has a line is played by Edith Evanson. She passed away in 1980. She always had little bit parts in movies, but man, uh, her filmography is pretty impressive. Just a couple of movies she's been in: Rope, Marnie, Shane, and Woman of the Year. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a bunch yeah, of, but did she do anything good? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, wow. That's a really, that's an impressive filmography to have when you have these, those four movies and Citizen Kane. I mean, my, yeah. my goodness. And they, and you see the way that she delivers the line where she's like, uh, come on now, Mr. Mr. Leland. And you could tell that they're kind of, you know, he's a character and because he's, he's sitting there in front of them saying, when you send me the cigars, wrap them up. Uh, so they they'll, they'll stop them at the desk. And it's like, right. He knows they can hear him, you <laughs> yeah. know, and he's saying it anyway. And then he gets even kind of nasty where he talks about, you know, that story about that uh, nurses are all beautiful. Don't let them, don't let them fool you. And he's like, wow, that's pretty nasty. <laughs> but you also know that he kind of doesn't mean it. He's just being kind of a rapscallion sort of. He's yeah. just kind of be. And you, I think the way that the two nurses look at each other, they kind of have this, uh, there's one nurse that doesn't have a line and she's got glasses and she looks at the other nurse. And they both just kind of have this resigned look of like, all right, you know, this is what it's like to deal with, with Jed Leland. There he goes again. Yeah. There he goes again. Yeah, exactly. So, And, and he also has a look, well, they've got this funny idea. They want me to live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, I, that's a great line too. I guess he's wondering why, you know, why I'm just, I'm just serving time here basically. Yeah. So what's the point? Might as well enjoy some cigars as I go out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what's what's the difference? <laughs> you know, so uh, but that's the end of the five minutes. So he said it's it's a it's a great it's a great bunch of scenes again led with the the technical brilliance of that that uh, sort of I was gonna say the split diopter shot, but it's not a split diopter shot because that was before they invented such things. But mm-hmm. it's the same idea. And again, it's uh, we see you know Charlie is slowly shedding everyone in his life that might have retained helped him retain who he was. He's getting rid of them all because he can't tolerate any dissent. Uh, in any way, again, it's something we're living with right now in 2021 mm. are people like that. And I said, it's just, it's just a great, uh, it's a great collection of moments uh, in these five minutes. Yeah. You know, like another weird thing is like watching this segment or rewatching this segment for the, the podcast, I was flashing back on an old uh, Saturday Night Live sketch with the original cast um, where they did this extended parody of Citizen Kane. And I, I assume you've seen this, right? Oh, yeah. Written by Michael O'Donoghue. Yeah, the great Michael O'Donoghue, who is one of the all-time best uh, SNL writers. Um, and 
And it's a long sketch, even for like SNL in that era where they had longer sketches. I think this sketch is as long as like eight minutes or something like that. Is it season one or season two? I because it's, it's Chevy and Chevy was on the show in the very early part of season two. Is right. It... it was probably the first season since okay. it, uh, Chevy's in it. Um, yeah. And Chevy Chase plays Jed Leland and, <laughs> and, and they even like they ape the structure of Citizen Kane. I mean, they have different characters giving you different flashbacks and they have all the characters sort of come back for their curtain call at the end. And hmm. I remember Chevy Chase, you know, he repeats that line. And he's like, Oh, I'd love a good cigar. And, and the whole thing, and they they take Citizen Kane and Dan Eckert does a great Citizen Kane. I mean, you perfect. Put the per- who Dan else Ackroyd- could possibly play Orson Welles than Dan? Ackroyd? I mean, you put Dan Aykroyd in any sort of old movie parody. He's he's yep. in his he, he's in his uh, wheelhouse, you know. And he and, his, and his, he's like making the Inquirer more sensationalistic. He's and he actually like grabs a gun and shoots two people <laughs> from the the windows <laughs> of the Inquirer. And he's like, oh, there's your headline: Mad Mad Gunman on the Loose. <laughs> When will when will the police stop him? <laughs> I, remember, I can remember that bit. Bang, bang, and you're ah, right. mad killer on the loose. And, and the sketch is in black was, and white. Yeah, yeah, black they do white. it in black and white. And Buck Henry is the reporter. He's playing Thompson. <laughs> Perfect. And and it, it's Citizen Kane two was the conceit <laughs> was like you know someone comes to him and they're like wait I just remembered. He had more last words, and and it's it was roast beef and then. Henri, who is like this uh, copy boy, the Inquirer, and then and then it's on mustard, and then at the very end of the sketch, I'm going to give away the final gag, but screw it. Um, we see a menu burning, and it just says roast beef on <laughs> rye with mustard, and it was just like Kane's lunch order. That day. <laughs> I love that. I love that it's it's highbrow and lowbrow. Yeah. Who like what sketch show in 1975? was going to parody Citizen Kane. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that that by itself is is daring and to do it in black and white. And by the way, I read in a book, a, a book about us and where they said that the director of that show, Dave Wilson, tried to talk Lorne Michaels out of putting it in black and white because he felt viewers would get confused and wow. Lorne pressed for it. And, you know, I guess you can understand on some level, but it's like, well, if the rest of the show was in color yeah and then it became black and white figure it out everybody i mean come on Well, and also how can you parody citizen kane and not do it in black and right, white exactly I mean, yeah all credit to whoever decided that to give it that extra bit of verisimilitude yeah. and put it in black i mean because i mean that's that's just fantastic but i mean i love the idea that the, you know the the highbrow michael o'donoghue you know the the dark prince of the national lampoon comes up with a parody of citizen kane which again is highbrow and then the joke is Oh, his final words was was Rosebud on Reed with mustard. Like it's a st- it's yeah. like Mad Magazine level joke, but yet brought with all this technical brilliance. It's just it's it's great. Yeah, yeah, and and you can tell all the actors were were having a ball too. I mean, they just oh yeah, they must have loved that. <laughs> there have been a lot of interesting Citizen Kane parodies. Like before we started recording, you you also talked about uh, there there's a Kids in the Hall the Kids in the Hall sketch, sketch, yeah, that I'd forgotten where it's. Uh, one person is is remembering the film, but he doesn't remember that it's Citizen Kane. And Dave Foley is like, keeps going, like, no, it's Citizen Kane. Oh, I'm the I, I have it backwards. It's Kevin McDonald is the one who's telling Dave Foley, oh, okay. watch Citizen Kane. No, it was like that though. It had Orson Welles, and he was a newspaper tycoon. Yeah, it's Citizen Kane. No, <laughs> Psycho. It was Psycho. No, it's not Psycho. It's <laughs> and of course, as with typical with Kids in the Hall, the sketch turns to murder. Because right. Dave Foley drives Kevin McDonald completely insane with his 
ridiculous ramblings, which again, that, that guy would be on Twitter today. Uh, cause he would say, I saw this movie with Orson Welles and he's a newspaper tycoon and there's a sled and everyone would be like, it's Citizen Kane. And that guy on Twitter would be like, no, no, it wasn't. You're all wrong. That's exactly yeah. what would happen. Yeah. And you know, I know, uh, like Tiny Toons and The Simpsons have both done Citizen sure, King the Simpsons, parodies absolutely. as well. And I'm sure we have like a whole generation or two of people who saw those before they ever saw the movie. Oh, totally. Especially and, The Simpsons. I think The yeah. Simpsons was hugely influential. Yeah. Um, so it's... <laughs> they're, they're, was they're the really... Tiny Toons one in black and white? I can't remember. I think it was. Okay. I think it was. I think, yeah. I think everybody realizes if you're going to do it, you got to do it in black and white. You can't, right. you know, even The Simpsons one where he has the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. are in black and white. I think you just realized that's, and I, I feel like that, that was SNL set the pattern. Yeah. If you're going to do Citizen Kane, you got to do it in black and white. You can't. Sure. Sure. Yeah. What would Citizen Kane in color even look like? It would be hard. So yeah, this is perfect. Yeah. It's, it's amazing again how much. <laughs> Thank God Ted Turner never colorized it, huh? Thank goodness. As Orson Welles said, keep that Turner guy, keep that Turner guy in his crayons away from my movie. Right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank God there is no colorized version of, of Citizen Kane. So, uh, so that's going to do it for these five minutes. John, thank you so much for stopping by and talking Citizen Kane with me again. We'll have to do this again in five more years. Okay. Yeah. It's a date. <laughs> I don't know what I'll format see, I'll that's going to take. We'll do it in 2026, whenever, whatever Citizen Kane related podcast I'm doing. So, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Uh, well, I mean, I have a podcast of my own that I co-host uh, with my friend, uh, Darren Patterson. We call it the SNL Nerds, where when Saturday Night Live is on, uh, we, go through each new episode and go through it sketch by sketch, talk about what we think and hopefully are funny and entertaining along the way. And then during the summer hiatus or the off weeks, like we're in now, we watch uh, movies and TV shows starring SNL alums. So we have a lot of fun with that. Now I know you've gone back and watched older episodes of Mm -hmm. SNL. Do you starting, are you, when you go back into the old ones, are you starting with the first show and then moving forward? Uh, we skip around. Okay. On our 100th episode, we decided to watch the first episode of SNL that George Carlin hosted. Mm-hmm. And uh, Janice Ian was the musical guest. And, uh, you know, he also had Andy Kaufman appearing. Mickey I mean, Mouse, doing his Mickey Mouse bit. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it was really interesting to go back and look at that, you know, because they obviously hadn't quite figured out what the show was going to be yet. Mm-hmm. And, like, the not ready for primetime players aren't in it as much as you would expect. I mean, right. You know, there's there's short films. There's like I think three musical numbers. There's, <laughs> there's a thing with a new group of Muppets from Jim Henson. And Albert Brooks film. Yeah, it's all Albert it's, Brooks film. Uh, George Carlin does a few segments of stand up. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, we we haven't uh, rewatched too many old old episodes because there are a few other SNL podcasts that do that, and we don't want to duplicate that too much. Gotcha. But we do that once in a while. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay, well, check, check it out, everybody. SNL, SNL Nerds. It's uh, on the non-productive uh, podcast network. <laughs> Perfect name. Uh, yeah. So, of course, you want to find back episodes of this show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking Citizen Kane on Twitter, at Minute. And then finally, if you want to support the Find Water Podcast Network, let's go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on the show of your choice. So big thanks to Slick for his slash her support of Citizen Kane Minute. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back next week for more Citizen Kane Minute. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself.